0: Hey, Song Surfers, welcome to Song Surfing. It's your friend, John. Song Surfing is a playlist of independent music pulled from the far reaches of the internet. If you're checking out the show for the first time, that's the usual format, where I, along with the show's correspondents, pick out tunes, we play some songs for you, from around the world. Once in a while, though, a guest stops by with some excellent tunes for you. And joining us today is Elfin Bow, described by Shindig Magazine as lyrically astute and melodically inventive. Her self-penned folk songs and stories weave a tapestry that combines mysterious characters, myths, and legends with the heartache and adventure of real life. Liverpool-born, now living next door to a 12th century castle on a hilltop in North Wales, Elfin's songs and stage presence exude color, charisma, and a gentle charm. A strict 1970s church upbringing that frowned upon any kind of music was the catalyst for her quiet rebellion. And as a child, she saved her pocket money to buy her own radio to listen to covertly under the covers. Two successful crowdfunding campaigns enabled both the release of her debut self-titled album, launched with a live session on BBC Radio Wales, and her version of Sandy Denny's Who Knows Where the Time Goes with the Fruit de Mer record label, recorded with the Scottish Session Symphony Orchestra. In stage outfits that interpret her lyrics, Elfin invites moments of musical magic in venues big and small. Elfin Bo was previously featured on Song Surfing when we heard the song Daffodilly Down, which sounds like this. Daffod- Elfin and Bo, welcome to Song Surfing. Hey,
1: hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: What is this new release? The 18th Dream? uh, It's for the 18th Dream of Dr. Sardonicus
1: Festival? Sardonicus Festival. Yeah, of course it's a psychedelic festival and they couldn't just have a normal name for it, could they? So there's a festival in in Mid Wales, uh, sort of near the coast, and they have um, uh, a psychedelic festival there with people who come from all over Europe, all over the world, in fact, who are real um, vinyl collectors. You know, they, they, they love um, their music. And um, when uh, Pete, who organises the festival, who I've collaborated with a few times, he's in a band called Sendelica, when he heard that um, I had a GoFundMe campaign to bring my partner, John Silvers, over to the UK, um, he said, how about we release a sp- something special for the festival this year and so um last year or was it the year before I've lost a year because of the dreaded sea but um he had um done a premix of one of the songs that's coming up on my next album um where he'd taken my guide tracks and he'd put guitars and all kinds of things to it and made a I couldn't say remix because it's not been released yet so it's like a premix and um, and he said we could put that out and also we need um another artist to make another version on the, the other side. So we asked um, Noughts and Crosses, who are really great friends of John, um, and they were delighted to be asked to do a version. And in one week, they put together the track that um, I think we're going to play today. But it's um, it's got artwork by a fantastic friend of mine um, called Hilary Drawn, painter, which I felt just went with the lyrics completely. And, uh, and it's a limited edition, lathe-cut single, um, that's going to be sold exclusively at the festival. And what happens is they release limited edition things so that people kind of fight over them and then they become fun, you know, valuable. So they might even be on eBay afterwards <laughs> uh, rather more than you'd buy them at the festival. So, but it, any, anything to, you know, help us raise money for this um, venture of ours to get John to come over here and live in the UK is, is just amazing. And Pete's, you know, worked really hard to get this release together.
0: Okay, that's great. I didn't know that it was uh, tied in with the fundraiser for getting John to the UK.
1: Yeah. How's that yeah. going? Uh, really good, really good. We we literally, for anyone who doesn't know, John Silvers is an incredible musician who's been on your show before, and he's based in California, and um, we met uh, last year and um, fell in love. And he's also my musical collaborator, so we're working on projects together as well. And uh, And we're trying to get him over to the UK to live here, so... Um, We were doing a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for all the visas and the travel costs and all the things that are just a bit beyond us right now, um, to make our dreams come true of being able to make music in the same place and obviously create our life together. Um, And the other night, um, we actually wrote his visa application and paid for the first part of it, which is amazing. So. So many generous people have been helping us and sending us amazing messages of support. And it just goes to show, um, you know, how a community can really get behind people to lift each other up and make great things happen.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, I'll be sure to link to the GoFundMe in the show notes for this episode as well. Thank you. The song is being released exclusively at the Psychedelic Festival. Do you consider your music psychedelic?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite interesting, really, because I um, I walked into the smallest record shop in the world, which exists in a town not far from me, in Mould, run by a guy called Colin. It literally fits two people in the shop, that's it. And when I first moved to Wales from Liverpool, I, I was trying to connect with people, and I, I walked into his shop, and we got talking about music, and I gave him one of my CDs, and he said he would sell them in the shop. And a few weeks later, he emailed me and said that um, a guy who has a psychedelic radio station had been playing some of my music, and he he sent me the website with the links and everything. And on it, I saw Fruits de Mer Records um, and asked Colin about them and said, who, who is this? You know, what 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 are they about? And he said they're a small kind of niche, psychedelic, prog rock, um, acid folk, folk kind of album, you know, vinyl-releasing record label based in the UK. And um, by the time I'd driven home, Colin had already sent an email to Keith, who runs the label, and introduced us. And Keith rang me a short time later and said, um, you know, have you got any music that um, that we could put out? And that's where the Sandy Denny track came in. So it's interesting because ever since then, I've kind of, like, been embraced by that community um, and and I often I feel like I'm I'm like one of the it's not many kind of very folky acts, um, and I might be sandwiched in between two like really loud prog rock improvisational bands <laughs> um, at the festival. But but it seems somehow goes down really well. Maybe it's like the the artistic presentation as well. You know, I always kind of like go all out with some costumes and you know things like that. Um, so maybe there's a, a sort of like art and music kind of fusion that goes on with um with psychedelia as well um but i i have to say that they're like a family to me now and uh and i'm playing again this uh this year uh, and i'm really looking forward to it
0: so you mentioned your costumes can you tell us about that
1: well i'm an artist a visual artist as well as a musician i have been ever Mm -hmm. since i was tiny and um when i decided to kind of embrace doing music on my own after being in various duos um, for several years, uh, and I took on the the name Elf and Bow, I really saw it as an opportunity to embrace bringing together my art and music. And often I would just get ideas. I'd be writing a song, like Daffodilly Down, for example, that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, there's certain uh, images that come up in that song. You know, there's ber- songbirds, and there's rivers, and there's... Um, you know, seasons and things like that. And I, I ended up doing a drawing, which I turned into a fabric design, had the fabric printed and made like this big kimono thing that I wore on stage. And so it was kind of like I was wearing the illustration of my song that I was playing. And it just is it's quite a nice cycle of creativity that goes on where, you know, I might do that with clothing, but I might also do it with set design or the artwork or you know and um, other elements of the live performance so it's a way of bringing together different sides of me and um, just for creative expression really
0: are you familiar with jack white yes So I was just listening to an interview that he did, and he was talking about clothing choices that he makes with his band, but also carries into his, uh, all of his businesses, really. Like his road crew has a certain uniform that they wear that goes along with his outfit. The white stripes had coordinated outfits and all of their albums followed a color pattern. It was an interesting way that he put it where it was like a a way of separating or heightening, I guess, the performance. I don't know if separating is really the way he put it, but it was a, a way of making the music and the performers larger than life. And I, I thought that that was interesting, right? That it's, you know, really looking at every angle of the performance, not just the music.
1: It is. And it's what I find is that, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from the music. It adds to how I feel going out on stage. You know, I wasn't one of those kids that was like, oh, look at me. I'm going to sing and dance in front of all the family or... I was very, very shy, very quiet. I'm quite introverted, naturally, although I love company and good conversation. And um, and I perform because I have something I have to express and I have to put it out there. And I guess it gives me a certain amount of confidence. Um, it gives me a reason to, to express myself visually. It's exciting. It's fun. Um, but it's it's it also... Um, I've had audience members come to gigs wearing like flower crowns that they've made or wearing brighter colours than they might normally do. And they they sort of say that, you know, oh, you gave me permission to to kind of wear something that I've always wanted to wear, but I, I didn't have a reason to or I didn't feel confident to. And it's like it's 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 not an alter ego for me in in terms of like Elfinbow is not taking on a different character or becoming someone else like an actor might take on a role. It's about stepping into me confidently like my my full self as a musician as an artist as a creative being to just fully express and like i said before make that connection back to what the music is about you know not that it has to illustrate every song or anything like that but it just maybe captures a feel or something a visual um that gives an extra layer to what people are experiencing when they come and see me live.
0: Do you do outfit changes during your performances? <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> no, I couldn't be bothered doing that. That's <laughs> um, maybe the, the next level when you have a crew. Yeah. I think I'd have to be like on some kind of major stage with like a crew backstage to kind of, you know, like have, have the clothes ready to jump into. No, I'm, I'm not that much of a diva and, uh, and yeah, no, I, I, you know, but I I also don't turn up sometimes to a gig in my like jeans and then get changed. I'll get ready before I leave the house, so I'll be driving the car dressed as a Welsh dragon, or <laughs> um, you know, I'll have like ram's horns on my head, getting petrol at the petrol station. Or do you know what I mean? It's like uh, you
0: need to put these pictures on Instagram. <laughs> I want to see this.
1: Yeah, and I you know I kind of think oh shit you know like I have I've done it now you know yeah I can't be ignored. So yeah it's um it's it's just fun it's just a more fun way to live I think.
0: So you said you were a shy kid?
1: Yeah, I was terribly shy, really really quiet. I was an observer. My mom always said that when I was born I kind of like opened my eyes and I looked around as if I'd been here before. And then at parties and events and things I'd you'd find me on the wall, you know, literally the wallflower just kind of clinging to the walls and uh, very very shy and uh I guess, um, I guess that leaves you when you start doing things that you love and you have something to share and something to say. Also, I went into teaching. You can't be shy when you're a teacher and you're standing in front of a whole class of teenagers. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's interesting that I think when I was 15, 14 or 15, uh, I had some friends who were all very much, they wanted to perform at the end of year concerts. And they'd, you know, they'd been to the music teacher and, um, you know, they, they were always singing all the time. And I was kind of like the, the add-on friend who kind of followed them around. Somehow, and I have no idea what got into me, but I decided to go to the music teacher and ask if I could sing a song at the concert on my own. I have no idea why I did that. But I went and got a backing track in the days of, like, tapes, you know, and all the backing tracks were on tapes. And um, I went and got a, a tape from, the, from my local music shop. And I sang the greatest love of all by Whitney Houston in front of the whole school. <laughs> I mean, of all that was songs to sing, when I was six years old. <laughs> of all songs to sing that like don't suit my voice, do you know what I mean? It's like I'm not Whitney at all. Um, but something got into me, to, and she was like, "Yes, of course you can," you know. And 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 I sang that as well as a couple of compositions that I'd written as well. And uh, and everybody was like, "Oh my goodness," you know. Where's this come from? And I think that was just me after years of kind of being the, the wallflower and the shy kid, just saying, do you know what, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start living life and, and putting myself out there a little bit more. And um, yeah, never really looked back from then.
0: Did you have a period where you had to grow into performing or did it feel natural for you from the beginning?
1: Hmm, it doesn't it doesn't always feel natural. I mean it, it, it feels natural to, to play music and to sing and to play the songs that I've written. I don't really do covers for that reason. I you know apart from the Sandy Denny song, I, I don't really sing other people's songs because it feels more na- most natural for me to sing my own songs. but once I'm in front of uh, an audience who have come to listen and appreciate the songs, I really love building up that relationship with the audience that extends beyond the music and into the time after the gig as well, where I get to know people. And, uh, and I really value the friendships and the, the, the relationships that have come from that. And so it's almost like um, more than just whether I'm up for performing or not. You know, I, I don't get nervous and get stage fright in the way that some people might do. Um, i I feel like I want to be prepared and I want to be ready and have rehearsed enough and got my stuff together and all that kind of thing. Um, and if I haven't had time to do that, it can be a little bit stressful. but i I love I love performing, but I you know I wouldn't go to like noisy pubs and try and sing over rowdy crowds anymore. i I've done that over the years. It doesn't suit my music. It doesn't suit the vibe. I can't compete with, you know, 20 drunk men standing with their backs to me in a pub on a Friday night. It just doesn't work. It sounds gross. <laughs> and lots of people do it and they, you know, and they do it to earn money. But I would, I, you know, and hats off to them. If that's something that you want to do, great. But that's, you know, I'd rather do less gigs, but put them on in really beautiful places where people can come and listen and really appreciate the music. And create the atmosphere and the magical experience of being there, you know. So all of those things help to make it like a, a really meaningful experience for me. And that's what I get the most out of, really.
0: So your first performance was at school, right, with your music teacher? Or did you play piano or anything before that? When when did you really first have your exposure to music?
1: We always had a piano in the house. My mum's dad, who I never met, because unfortunately, he passed away before I was born. But he was a A a pianist, a composer, uh, played the violin as well, which I actually own his violin. Um, And I I started playing the piano as soon as I could sit up. So I even started composing my own piano pieces, I think at the age of three or four. I remember my neighbours coming round to listen to something that I'd made up. Um, I very soon after that became shy, and so I didn't want to perform in front of my mum's friends and things. But... I was always at the piano, um, so I had piano lessons from about the age of five, and started playing the violin at seven at school, and um, and just always sort of seemed to gravitate towards music. I was involved in church. You, know, I, you mentioned in my biog, I was brought up in a Baptist church, and it was a very kind of a, kind of evangelical, forward-thinking church, and we had a music group uh, where we would improvise, and I would play the violin. With the group and we'd go on, you know, when there were marches through the town, I'd be on the back of a lorry and I'd be playing in the cold and wind and rain and um, or we'd do performances, um, you know, with the church youth group and things like that, um, that I would just join in with. Um, So I I wasn't completely, um, you know, unaware of those kinds of opportunities, but it wasn't really until I got to that kind of stage where I started writing music for in in the UK we have GCSEs which are exams at like 16 years old at school they're like the main exams and I took music so uh, we had some uh, people at church who'd got a music recording studio and I was right I started writing songs and they invited me to their recording studio and helped me record my compositions for my GCSE music and that's what really opened the door to my awareness about the the power of recording That and my music teacher at school who'd um, revolutionised the music department from a very dusty, antiquated place to be to somewhere with bands and recording studios and little gadgets and things like that that we could play around with. And I used to take myself into the music room as a place of refuge and go and just record things. I've still got a tape with some of those very early recordings on. I cringe at them, but I keep it as kind of a memento of those very early days.
0: I destroyed my first tape. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of regret it now.
1: I've got nothing to play it on. That's the only problem. But uh, you never know, one day I might get an old Walkman or something.
0: So in your bio, it mentions 1970s church upbringing that frowned upon any kind of pop music. So what was the reaction to your music in your family when you started writing your own?
1: So yeah, my my family, I, I don't want to paint them as like awful people are amazing people my mum and dad support my music endlessly now but when we were growing up we kind of listened to church music we used to watch we've got a, a tv program in the uk that was called top of the pops and my dad would kind of make us watch it with the sound off and then kind of laugh at everybody's outfits you know all the, the new romantic kind of um puffy sleeves and waistcoats and and long hair and stuff it was like a bit of a kind of them and us in terms of, you know, us in church and the world outside and for quite some time. And um, the the story about the buying the radio to listen to music under the covers was hilarious because I saved up my money from like picking insects off my dad's uh, cabbages and things in the garden uh, before we went on summer holiday, saved up this tin of money, ran to the shop when we got on holiday uh, to buy a radio and, um, Spent all my money in one go on this radio, took it home and realised that it was just AM. There was no FM on the radio and it was just like, oh, no. it was Spanish chat. There was no music to be found and I was I was absolutely devastated. <laughs> but then I, I persuaded my mum to get a clock radio, which meant, you know, it was for waking up in the morning, but actually I could listen to the charts and things on the radio. So gradually, you know, they, they softened and, um, you know, now they look back and think, wow, we were really strict. But... They've always supported our creative expression. We didn't have much money growing up, there were lots of kids, but we all had the opportunity to have piano lessons. Um, we all had the opportunity to, to play music, and they've always supported um, anything that I've done musically since. So I'm very grateful to my parents. And for all that, you know, I had a, a different kind of musical upbringing, I actually listened to a lot of classical music, and that gave me a really good grounding in melody and harmony and structure and layering and movements and emotion that, um, you know, it, it's, there's no kind of good way or bad way of growing up. We just grow up and we use those experiences um to plow into what we do in the future, you know, whatever that was.
0: So is classical music what you were playing in church?
1: It kind of was, but we also had a lot of visiting like American artists as well. Uh, we had this one family called the Buekamers. I did track down their LP uh, from Sweden or somewhere, and uh, because just for nostalgic sake, because there were a family—a man and a, and his wife and two daughters—and they all dressed in long white robes with long, long hair. They all had long hair, and the dad had this long beard. And they came and sang these songs and sang in harmony. I was blown away by the harmony. Me and my sisters. Uh, I've got two sisters. We used to sing in harmony all the time at home when we were washing up or we'd get around the piano and we'd sing together. It was an interesting kind of mix of classical music because my parents thought we ought to know about that, but also kind of like praise and worship music, very influenced by American music in like the 80s as well. So,
0: Can we talk about, oh, how the strong ones fall?
1: Absolutely. So this is a song that I wrote um about two years ago, um, living in a part of Wales, about half an hour from here, where I was surrounded by um, lakes and woodlands and hills, and I was doing a bit of a pilgrimage up the hill every day. This walk, walk, uh, quite a challenging walk up through these woods. Um, and they're pine woods, and they have this public footpath through the woods, but because of the high winds on the hill, the trees are always coming down. And they create this kind of obstacle course across the path. And being pine trees, there's all these spikes as well. And it's quite a challenge to kind of like go over and under these trees. Just on these walks, I was just observing things like there was a piece of wood that just looked like it had been bleached by the sun. And, um, and there were these little meadow flowers and all these little things that have become references in that song it made me think about the fragility of the things that we think are going to be strong and stable and around forever, um, whether that be buildings, societal structures, politics, whatever it is, we sometimes just take for granted that things are going to be around forever. But there's a fragility, even to the things like you know uh, that we 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 think are going to be strong and stable. And yeah, I'm going to be recording it again uh, on my next album, um, so it's going to have a few different versions out there in the world, I think. <laughs>
0: So this version, who's playing on the recording? What's that flute sound? Is that a keyboard?
1: Oh, well, okay. So I I asked Noughts and Crosses, uh, Woody and Jim, um, to do something on this track. Because I just knew, having listened to their music um, through John, that they would understand the vibe of the song and and what I was kind of going for. Um, But I also gave them complete freedom to do whatever they wanted on the track. So they took my guide vocal and well, they they took my vocal and my guitar and a bit of harmony and they literally took it into their studio, which is like a treasure trove of unusual medieval instruments and weird kind of hybrid technological instruments. Um, Gadgets—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's it's amazing um, studio. If you follow them on um, Instagram, you'll see pictures of um, of the things that they work with. I just knew that they would take this song and they would do something amazing with it, and they did. So I—I I didn't have much to do with the musicality of this because this is one of the premixes where I, you know, the other the other song on the vinyl single um, is kind of grun—is like this dark grungy guitar waltz. And whereas what they've done is kind of take it more kind of like into this magical journey, which kind of goes through different phases. It goes into kind of like quite a, almost like a medieval section at one point as well. And I was listening to it and I was just so happy with what they've done.
0: The version that you have so far sounds sounds great. I like how it patiently grows. Yes. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's, sounds pretty awesome as is. Can we listen to it? Absolutely. All right, so this is Oh How the Strong Ones Fall. And what did you call this edition of it?
1: This is the Noughts and Crosses Premix.
0: And we're back. Elfin, you played with the Scottish Session Symphony Orchestra. What was that like?
1: Well, um, when I decided to record Who who Knows Where the Time Goes, which is a very classic song by Sandy Denny, um, and lots of people have covered that song, I decided to ask my collaborator, Gary Lloyd, who had done the final mix and mastering of my uh, debut album, if he wanted to work with me on it, and he said to me, called me up one day and said, would you like to record with a symphony orchestra? And I just went, yeah. (laughs) And uh, and he had uh, a friend who, so basically um, there's a a recording sort of set up up in Scotland in Glasgow. Uh, Where they take some of the best players from the Symphony, Scottish Symphony Orchestra, the BBC Orchestra, and they come together to record big projects. Um, But at the end of those recording days, um, artists like myself can book in smaller amounts of time because it's very expensive to record with an orchestra. Um, So they set it up as uh, it's called the Clockwork Sessions. And basically you can record just a, a small amount of time. Like you might need 10 minutes, you might need 20 minutes, you might need half an hour. And if they fill like a, a couple of hours with enough artists who want to do that, then they'll run a session. So basically um, that was one of my crowdfunding campaigns and we raised enough money to pay for the orchestra. I went up to Glasgow and uh, and they were fantastic. They're just amazing musicians. Remember, one at one point they had to drop in and play one note again. And it was like this whole orchestra was like just one being who could just kind of play this one note absolutely perfectly from beginning to end. And I was like, wow, they're just amazing. But it was interesting at the end of the day that some of them said to us, we went for a drink with with, uh, some of them afterwards, and some of them were saying to me, you know, we love doing this kind of thing because we just play the dots usually. You know, we just play the music that's in front of us and we love being around people who are making up their own music. That's not something that we do. And I know not all classical musicians or orchestral musicians, you know, some of them are very versatile and play all kinds of things. But it was just interesting to kind of, you know, I held them in high esteem for what they could do. Um, Feeling a bit inadequate, actually, in some ways. But they were actually, you know, sort of thinking the same about me um, and and the songs that I'd written.
0: Who arranged the music for them? Did you...
1: Arrange it? Um, Gary Lloyd wrote the string arrangements. So he composed all the strings because he is a, a man of many talents, but one of the things he does is he composes music um, for orchestra. And um, so that was kind of what he he dreamt up the, the orchestral parts uh, for them to play. So that was really, really special. And actually, I'm working with him again on my next album, together with another Gary, Gary Carpenter, who wrote all the original music for the wicker man film back in the 19 I think it was 1970s which is a bit of a cult british film oh, set yeah. on a, a remote fictional um, island and all kinds of weird stuff goes on <laughs> cool. but yeah so so we've got quite an interesting cool. collaboration coming up and both of them are orchestral composers gary carpenter has written music for the bbc proms and He's, he's kind of quite a modern composer. Gary Lloyd's, and you'll probably kill me for saying this, but he's a very romantic uh, composer as well. So I think between the three of us, uh, we're going to have quite a lot of fun uh, working out what the arrangements are for my next album.
0: Where can we find that recording? It's not on Bandcamp, is it?
1: Do you know what? <laughs> do, you know, do you know what? It's it, it, was, it was released on vinyl through Fruits to My Records, and it's still not been digitally released. It's been on the cards to be released ever since. uh, And I still haven't released it, but I'm going to make it my mission to get it out there this year. But if any of your listeners want to hear it, they can find me on Instagram or Facebook and I will send them a copy. So just DM me on Instagram or Facebook and I will send you the MP3 of that track.
0: Yeah. Awesome. If you could send me a copy, that would be great. I wanted to hear it, but all that's (laughs) online is like a 30 second clip.
1: Yeah, I think I think you'll like the finished results. It got very good reviews um, from all kinds of um, magazines and uh, blogs and websites, um, which was really good considering it's such an iconic song, you know. You, you always kind of think, oh, my goodness, are they going to accept this? And, and actually, because Sandy Denny was such a, an icon who died at the age of 34, um, having created so much music in the world up until that point, we, we actually released it as a kind of love letter to her. You know, this is like our love letter to, to her and all the legacy that she left behind.
0: Is, is Sandy Denny from Fairport Convention? Do I have that right?
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. yeah. She sang with Fairport Port Convention. Yeah. And the Straubs. And yeah,
0: that's one of the bands that's, I have a big hole in my music listening there. where I'm not familiar with their stuff at all.
1: The, you know, she's one of those Did people that, there's the still people who are discovering her um, And yet there's, you know, it's like that with all music, isn't there? There's there's people who have got lifelong fans and, and, um, you know, dedicated kind of listeners. And then there's whole sections of society that just have never come across them. Um, But that's the joy of discovering new music, isn't it? And delving into where those gaps are in your own musical history.
0: So you live next to a castle?
1: Yes. How did
0: did you end up there?
1: (laughs) So last summer, I moved house with my son, um... And yeah, just looking for somewhere inspiring, you know, after my last house in amongst the lakes and the woods and the trees and everything, I I was looking for something um, nearer a town for my son who's 14 and needed a bit more independence and I was having to drive him everywhere. So we moved to a little town called Denby and it has a, a 12th century castle or the remains of one on top of the hill and uh, and it's a very beautiful spot and it's literally, I don't know, like 50 feet from my front door. <laughs> oh my! It's literally outside the window. Um, if you go on my Instagram, you'll see some photographs that I put up sometimes when I'm running outside in my pajamas to capture the sunrise or, you know. But yeah, it's it's a very um, historical place, very, you know, there's lots of curious little back streets and alleyways and routes down into the, the high street and it's a very inspiring place. I've I've literally got a chair that's you know in my window looking out over the castle. And I, I've done a lot of writing there, actually.
0: Yeah, I can imagine it would be a good source of inspiration.
1: Mm. You really get a feel for the place and the people. And I, my imagination always wanders. And I think who's walked up this hill before hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And even before the castle was built, there was another structure there. We just don't know that much about it. But
0: did it inspire any music on your upcoming album?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. It's it's. Um, there's I've got you know a few creative projects underway to do with kind of like uh, music, spirituality, arts, connection, community, that kind of thing. And uh, I do a lot of writing, um, not just of music, but writing. So I'm probably going to be doing some podcasts or meditations, just all kinds of different things that feed into this response to where I live and definitely there's some songs on my next album um inspired by place I can't help but respond to things around me Uh, people places things that are said how I feel um probably like any songwriter really but because I feel free to write about anything uh, I can sort of find myself writing about things that you know not necessarily just like a, a love song but you know, something maybe about a character that might have lived before or people I've encountered, that kind of thing.
0: So can you go in the castle? Is it open to the public? It seems like a cool place to record if you could do that.
1: Um, It's it's mainly kind of like castle walls, so it's open air, but they do have um, a little gift shop. They have events there. They had some reenactments there a few months ago. They have like some Shakespeare plays each summer that play out in the open air. So it's it's quite popular for people to come and visit, um, and and it's actually still got quite complete castle walls that go around the town as well. So you can actually give a five pound deposit for this enormous metal key, which they give you from one of the cafes in town, and uh, and you can take yourself around the castle walls, opening all the gates as you go. Um, Goblin Tower is one of the most haunted places in North Wales.
2: It's called um, Goblin
1: Tower goblin tower yeah i'd be afraid yeah. to go you, <laughs> sounds too <laughs> <you> spooky <laughs> yeah you could you you know it, you can sort of take yourself around the castle walls and look at all the views of the, the surrounding countryside it's a very interesting place and this there's, there's a, a thing called open doors as well where they open historical buildings and unusual places and have um history experts who come and um do tours and things like that each year. So I'm looking forward to that this summer and finding out a bit more about um, the history of the place.
0: Yeah, this sounds incredible. I'm kind of fascinated by this. Um, you know, in the U.S., we don't have anything old. I am the East Coast. I guess there's some some stuff, but you know, I'm in the in the Midwest and the Chicago area. And here we've got strip malls, McDonald's, Starbucks. You know, it's yeah, that's the environment. So. I and, know, and
1: over the last few decades, we've spent all our time creating mini American malls, mini American retail parks outside of town.
3: Oh, you know yuck, we, no.
1: we, we, yeah we, we we do all those all those things that are sort of very Americanized and pulling down historical old cinemas and buildings and churches and things to make way for these horrible new uh...
0: Well, a lot of our malls <laughs> now are empty. <laughs> <laughs> and getting demolished so that seems yeah. like the wrong move well
1: we'll we'll probably we'll probably follow suit in you know in about 20 years um but it has been like the demise of the high street as well you know so our our traditional sort of high street and um, with shops and um, chains and independent shops have really seen um a downturn s- since we've got more kind of malls and retail parks outside of town that people can go to so it's it is it is quite sad to go to some of The once, you know, the towns that once were very vibrant uh, and now they're kind of, they're just full of either charity shops or thrift stores, as you'd call them, betting shops and like cheap bakeries. Um, You know, it's a bit depressing, really.
0: (laughs) Where does the name Bow come from?
1: That's really interesting. And I'd love to be able to say that it's because I speak Elvish, but I don't. I did think about learning it once because it's like the Tolkien language, which is inspired by Welsh. But um, I actually just opened a sketchbook one day and found this little doodle, this little drawing, and next to it were the words Elfin Bow. And I have no recollection of writing it or drawing it or anything. And and I was leaving, uh, I'd, I'd left a few duos that I'd been performing with and I was venturing out on my own and I was also getting married at the time and I was changing my name and I wasn't inspired by either my maiden name or my married name, and so I decided to um, use Elfin Bow as my name, and it just seemed to be something that I grew into and has felt comfortable and like it expresses who I am ever since.
0: Did that influence the music? Because it seems to tie all together, right? Like the the name fits the music, fits the presentation.
2: It's, it's a-
1: it's like the chicken and egg isn't it it's yeah. like what comes first you know i think i think it's a symbiotic sort of cyclical relationship where there is a sort of a magical you know, people have sort of said oh your music can be very magical and fairy tale like and um and you know your presence is like you know magical and things like that so i don't know if that's me playing into that role or or just who I am, or I don't know, but I, it does feel like it, it, that name has kind of settled on me like it was meant to be, so I've never really looked back since taking that on.
0: Do people call you Elfin? Like, are there people that yeah. just refer... <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> That's just well, your I, I, do a, I, I do a lot of work in schools as well, um, as an artist and a musician, so I get called everything, because my, my real name is Elizabeth, and I get called Lizzie, Liz, Betty... Elizabeth, obviously, I get called Elfin, Elfie. Um, I get called everything, and, and it's quite funny because when I go into schools, they always want to call me Elfin, like they like the fact that I'm Elfin Bow, and it's a bit different. And and so I'll be, we'll be doing some kind of craft activity, and the little ones will be like, Elfin Bow, can I have some scissors? Elfin Bow, can I have this?
0: It's got to be so cute.
1: <laughs> or, yeah, it is. Or I go to the supermarket, and I hear a little elfin across the aisle. And they was like, oh, hello. You know, some kids that I've been working with. So um yeah, they they seem to like it as well.
0: So let's get into the music that you picked out. We'll start with an artist described by Louder Than War as deeply moving and soulful. We're going to listen to Joe Beth Young and the song Twisted Tree. What do you like about it?
1: Oh, what do I not like about it? Joe Beth is... Somebody I have got to know through the internet, we've never met in real life, but we've become really good um, musical and creative kind of soul friends. And we both respect each other's creative output immensely. And that first album, An Abandoned Orchid House, where this song is from, is just, for me, it's one of those albums that I could just listen to endlessly and always find new layers, new new meanings, new feelings in that music and this song in particular I mean I love all the songs on that album there isn't one that I skip I love them all but this song in particular um has the line the beauty is in the broken things and there's a refrain as well the strongest to survive is the one who died a hundred times and not only has it got this energy this real strong energy to this song um as well as the fragility of of her vocal and and some of the the musicality of it It just really resonated with me and um, struggles that I've been through in my life and feeling like it's, you know, it's not over because you've had a difficult time. It's just the beginning and it's those difficult times that make you strong.
0: Could you read that quote again?
1: Uh, There's a refrain that says, um, the strongest to survive is the one who died a hundred times. And it ends with the beauty is in the broken things. And I know that she is, she was inspired by various things, lots of stories within the writing of this song, but one of them I didn't know about uh, until after I'd listened to it and I decided to make her a piece of artwork just out of the blue. It just came into my mind that I wanted to make something out of something that was broken. And I had um, a little vintage vase or vase that was broken. And I decided to mend it um, in that Japanese style with gold where the cracks become visible and you celebrate the cracks. Um, And I I mended this. I spent a few hours trying to piece all the little pieces together and mended all these cracks with gold. And I packaged it up and I sent it to her. And I didn't know that that was one of the influences of the songs, um, that technique of repairing. And it just seemed the most beautiful way to respond to someone's artwork with another piece of artwork that told her how much I appreciated it.
0: Wow. All right. This is Twisted Tree by Joe Beth Young. and let's play a little game okay all right i'm gonna say some things and you tell me what comes to mind first uh it can be a single word a single sentence if you want to expand on it it's up to you but you don't have to and let's just we'll just move quickly and and see what happens nature trees family love music Uh, expression art beauty fantasy
1: reality i like juxtaposition
0: Do you feel like there's juxtaposition in your music?
1: Yes. Yeah, all the time. I feel like there's um you know, there's as much as there's light, there's darkness, because you can't have one without the other. You know, life is like that. You can't you can't appreciate something without knowing what the opposite felt like. You can't know what you want without knowing what you don't want. Um, you know, you don't know what is good without knowing what's evil. It's it, it all exists in this duality.
0: When writing um, does the juxtaposition happen naturally or, or, or like more intuitively or is it more an intentional thing you set out to do
1: i think i think songwriting is very intuitive and sometimes i'll write a song and i have no idea where it's come from um and some songs just literally come out all at once uh when i put pen to paper and others take a little while longer to craft and you come back to ideas and rework them or try different things out but that juxtaposition that um you know, I think at some point, there's like a, a consciousness to the creation. So while to begin with, your ideas might come from somewhere, then you have to sort of like take responsibility for putting that 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 what that gift that you've been given out into the world. And that's where you start to, you know, think about the, the orchestration, the in- instrumentation, the arrangements, or just keeping it really simple. It asks to be made into what it needs to be. And so sometimes that might include like a darkness to the lyrics, but you present it in a, in a more kind of like friendly, positive light. Um, it, it, it just depends on, on, the, on the song and what the lyrics are, but I think it, it very much um, that duality exists in pretty much everything I do to some extent.
0: So the instrumental music you've been writing with John, this is for the North Cafe project?
1: Yeah, well, when I met John and he said to me, "Oh, I'd like you to work with me uh, on some instrumental music," I thought, "I can't do that. I don't write instrumental music." <laughs> and I was really like, "This is totally out of my comfort zone." I, you know, and he's a, as you know, a ukulele player, and um, you know, amazing uh, way of playing ukulele with, um, you know, it doesn't sound like you would expect a ukulele to play. Lots of people don't realize he's playing a ukulele when they just hear it. And, it's a little bit like finger style guitar in a way where you've got like the bass line and the melody and a rhythm and it's all kind of playing at once. So it's quite complex, um, his music when you break it down. And um, and so when he said that, I thought, oh, okay, but I do like a challenge. So over the last year I have like got drawn into, well, what would I do if I was to sit down and write instrumental music? And then we came up with this concept of the North cafe, which is a, a storytelling and instrumental music project um, released in installments, so like episodic um, podcasts in a way, if you like. Um, we're going to be releasing uh, like a double album. One album is going to have the story and snippets of the music, which help to tell the story. And then the other album will be all the music in its entirety. Um, so you can listen to it all and um and they'll be released together um and we're going to release the first lot in the autumn but it's um it's really interesting to you know we're writing the narrative we're writing the story about people who come into the cafe um and the 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 conversations they have and the little interactions and the character development and things like that and it's really about this place that's extraordinary in its ordinariness it's just a little cafe but these encounters and these conversations and these relationships are, are are what makes life life and what makes life worth living, you know? There's also music in the cafe. So it's a cafe that opens of an evening and has music events. So the music is actually the performers in the cafe playing as well. It's It's got lots of layers uh, and we're really enjoying creating it at the moment.
0: Yeah, this is exciting. So when can we expect this to be released?
1: Well, um, we were hoping to release it um, this summer but it's been pushed back a little bit just because is life and has challenges yeah. and um you know we'd rather not rush it and get it right so yes it, we've we've been putting out some content on social media just to introduce both of us as musicians on our, on the north cafe ig page but we are working very hard on um finishing off the recordings and finishing off the last bit of the narrative and all the artwork and the branding and all that kind of thing. Um, So we're hoping to have it released um, early autumn.
0: Let's listen to another tune. You picked out a song by Little Sparrow.
1: Oh, Little Sparrow. I love Little Sparrow. I met her when we were both asked to headline um, a a music event uh, in Liverpool. And we just both hit it off straight away. We just immediately clicked. We had so many similar influences. We ha- our, we had children the same age. We had um, similar clothing styles. We just both kind of just felt like we were sisters, uh, like musical sisters. We call each other. And ever since that first gig, we've we've played quite a few um, venues together and um, sang on each other's music because we exchanged CDs back in the day, and we both had each other's albums on in the car like nonstop for months. And we both knew each other's music intimately after that. So when Katie rang me up and said, oh, would you like to sing some harmonies with me at this gig? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then she's done the same. And then we, we in February, we did a, a, a Songwriters Circle gig with another artist called Daria Kulesh. And we kind of took it in turns to share songs that we'd written and we performed on each other's music as well. I, I just, I just um, love her. She's very charismatic, performing live. In fact, she's performing... 10 minutes away from here on Saturday. So I'm going to go and see her on Saturday night as well. Not at the castle. But she's not at the castle, but she is playing in the woods. So she's doing a, a, a gig live outside in amongst all the trees at a, a very special venue wow. called the Woodland Skill Center. Yeah. So we'll be sitting outside for that one. That sounds um, very cool. It's very magical. Yeah. Over.
0: Little Sparrow is singer-songwriter Katie Ware. A title that came from elbow front man Guy Garvey, affectionately calling her Cockney Sparrow, which led to the stage name Little Sparrow. Drawing influences from the likes of Kate Bush, PJ Harvey, and All About Eve, Little Sparrow's music creates songs that are filled with a blend of styles woven into the colorful tapestry of her music, often with a mysterious fairy tale quality. it. into So this is Struck Gold by Little Sparrow.
4: said to you, don't look away. Keep your eyes on me, don't learn to stray. I wouldn't change you for the world. You're the piece of me that struck gold. You're the piece of me that struck gold.
0: And what's a lesson that you've learned along the way?
1: There's so many, but I would maybe have to say that um, it's important to unhook from praise and criticism. It's so easy to get drawn into what you think other people are going to like, whether they like it or not, whether they follow you or not. And, And one of my favorite authors, Tara Moore, wrote a book called Playing Big. And in it, she talks about unhooking from praise and criticism And that was a bit of a game changer for me because while we need a balance of our ego and our awakened consciousness to be heart-centered, but with balls to get out there, we need to not get drawn into what we think others will like because that stops us from creating from our heart. Um,
0: Yeah, that's a good way to make your music bland, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you get drawn into the comparison monster, you know, like you start you know, looking what other people are doing and it makes you feel inadequate. And then it, and it's just like this downward spiral instead of the creative spiral is actually one of empowerment and finding things within yourself that, you know, are unique to you. But, you know, you're not going to appeal to everybody. No one makes music that everybody likes. Nobody in the world agrees on anything. So, you know, you can quite easily get disheartened. And, and I think it's really important just to keep finding, you know, the people who resonate with you building good relationships with your fans and followers and kind of staying true to what you do and also celebrating others um, success like not just your own but celebrating other success because by doing that you are more likely to find your own success as well and um, there's enough opportunities there's enough gigs there's enough listeners there's enough audience for everybody who wants to make music and it's just about going out and finding them that might be more than one lesson
0: <laughs> no it's good stuff though so where can people find and follow all your stuff
1: well if you type in elfin bow e l f i n b o w into google you'll pretty much find me straight away there's no other elfin bows in the world there's an Alfie bow who's a singer in the uk and people sometimes think i'm his daughter uh, we're more like brother and sister actually in age but um but yeah type in elfin bow i'm on instagram facebook um i don't use twitter so much but my music can be found on amazon uh Bandcamp, spotify all over the place and i have a website which is just alfinbow.com and i love it when people get in touch and um you know make connections with me so you know if you like anything that you've heard please do just reach out and get in touch
0: all right wonderful so you're gonna play something live for us what, what do you have
1: I have a song, which I wrote fairly recently, um, inspired by, well, John Silvers, but also all the people who I met on Clubhouse when I joined Clubhouse last year. I wanted to share my music with the world, and I didn't know quite how to do that. I wanted it to be meaningful connections with people. And and then a few weeks later, i had had an invite to Clubhouse from my sister, and I joined the app, wondering what it was all about, and found myself in an open mic room with, like, 80 other artists all listening to each other's music and appreciating it from all over the globe, and it was amazing. And, um, and this song is called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which is a title stolen from a book of fairy tale illustrations by Kay Nielsen, but it sums up the idea that, you know, when you make connections with people from somewhere else in the world, they're in different time zones, and you might be saying good morning as it's good evening for them. So it kind of makes reference to loving somebody across a distance and a different time zone
0: all right i'm looking forward to this
1: and my neighbor's decided to destroy a wall outside so he's been hammering at some bricks outside for the last half an hour so i hope it hasn't picked up too much
0: <laughs> Oh should okay. invite them over
1: yeah <laughs> a little drink and then we'll be ready to go okay so this is east of the sun west of the moon
3: east of the sun and west of the moon i'll meet you in between Early morning, late night greetings. Hot time can't come too soon. The stars know there's a strange glow that no one has ever seen. Time gives (laughs)
2: <laughs> Thank yeah, you That
0: was awesome Will that one be released on your album when it comes out?
1: Um, yeah, not the next one but the one after that So I'll have been waiting for my album to be worked on with Gary and Gary um, I've written like a, like I don't know 15, 20 more songs on the back of that um, So I'll have another album coming hot on the tail of the next one if you know what I mean um, So yeah, I'll be working on both simultaneously I think
0: Wow. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much for playing live. That was so good.
1: Um, hopefully, the neighbors knocking the wall down next door isn't coming through on the recording. If it is, I'll record it later when it's quiet and send it over.
0: <laughs> I think it adds some <laughs> nice uh, nice atmosphere, even if it
1: does. <laughs> Bit of well,
0: unwanted percussion. This is great. Elf and Bo, thanks so much for being on Song Surfing.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love what you do and um, I love the podcast and it's just such a great privilege to be here and chatting to you today. So thank you.
0: Oh, that's so kind of you. Take care. Bye now. Okie dokie, friends, that music means it's time for me to say thanks for listening to Song Surfing. Thanks to Elf and Bo, Little Sparrow, and Joe Beth Young. You can find links to all of their music on the show notes page over at Song Surfing Podcast. Com. Over on that page, you'll also find the link to the GoFundMe to help get John Silvers to the UK. I've already donated, and I hope that you consider doing so as well, if it's in your means. You can find Song Surfing on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, Song Surfing Podcast, and on Twitter, Song Surfing Pod. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter under Oodles Music. If you like the show, then take a minute to five-star rate and review over on the Apple Podcast app or iTunes. Friends, I've been listening to some audiobooks related to the music, biz, and podcasting business, and I've got one to recommend. Start Your Music Business, written by entertainment lawyer Audrey Chisholm, has lots of practical advice, and I find it's... A nice second listen after the Ari Hurstan book that I was telling you about on a previous episode. Hear this and also thousands of other excellent audiobooks and podcasts on Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks and podcasts. If you go to audibletrial.com slash songsurfing or follow the link that I'll have for you in the show notes, you'll get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. If you decide to continue your membership after those 30 days are up, then it'll help support song surfing. And let me add friends that I've come and gone with a subscription to the app uh, over the years, depending on how much listening time I have. And one thing that I love about Audible, and I haven't come across this with any other subscription service, is even if you pause your membership, you don't lose any of the content that you've already bought or credits that you had banked. So I recommend giving it a try. AudibleTrial.com slash SongSurfing. The opening theme of the show is Living in a Fishbowl by Josh Ween and the outro music, Little Pills by Patrick Moonbird. My name's John Kell and see you next time.